seated. It's good to see you here this morning. I want to echo what our brother said. It's good to see everyone here this morning. And uh, it's almost like the first day of school jitters for me because we're starting a new series. Uh, when we came in here, you guys were in Matthew, and we picked up there. We reached a good stopping point, and we want to start a new subject, what we're calling a subject study series, is just a chance for us to examine a doctrine, a topic of scripture, to better understand it. And uh, when it comes to one of these sermon series, it's very easy, I think, for pastors to try to really punch home the importance in their mind of what we're going to talk about and what they're going to talk about. And so often these series are introduced as... You know, X is the most misunderstood doctrine in the church today. Uh, or, you know, there's no greater need in the church than for us to understand X. And that's usually how it sounds. And I want to avoid that kind of hyperbole. But when it, when it comes to the doctrine of the church, I think it is true that many churches today have abandoned the scriptures as their definitive final authority on their doctrine of the church. And, and I want to say that and, and kind of undercut that by saying that I, I'm assuming that they have some of the best intentions. If I can say that. They don't abandon the scriptures and how they think about Jesus or God or salvation or about daily Christian living. They understand that the scriptures have much to say about all of those things. If you ask them, should the scriptures have the final say about who Jesus is, who God is, how we're saved, about how we live the daily Christian life, many of, of the members of that church and the pastors would say, yes, absolutely, the scriptures should have the final say. But many churches would affirm this, and then at the same time, their doctrine of the church can be severely underdeveloped. Their doctrine of the church can be more influenced by business leadership techniques, marketing strategies, social media platforms, politics, or cultural pressure. If you did any investigating into church models of the recent past, and I use the air quotes intentionally, church models, you'll see that, that trends come and go and they have come and gone. For a while, you might have heard what was called the seeker-sensitive movement, which was a big thing. And, and the whole, everything about church was, was tailored towards those who might be seeking answers or seeking a place to plug in. Then that eventually faded. Then there was the church growth movement. And the church growth movement was all about here are, here are ways to, to make your numbers increase. And if you're not increasing, then you're not, if you're not increasing numerically, then there's no growth. And that's still prominent in some places. And, and often what happens is it gets preached in a conference. Some guy goes to a conference. He says, I like that. That sounds right. And then he takes it to his church of about 100 people. And he tries to implement a plan that was put in place in a church of 10,000. And it just doesn't work. So we had the secret sensitive. We had the church growth. And then you probably remember the purpose-driven church movement. Right? The five purposes of the church out of Rick Warren out of Saddleback Church in California. And it's a cycle. It's a cycle that once you see it, you can't unsee it. 
once you are aware that this cycle exists, here's how it usually goes, right? Some guy comes up with a system. He publishes a book, which becomes a curriculum. And this, this new approach is hailed as the way that we ought to do church and how church ought to be done. And if we're just being honest, it's deemed worthy of imitation, usually only because that pastor has a lot of bodies and seats on Sunday. There's no other criteria really necessary. So other churches may see some initial success with the model, but then the shortcomings become evident. Things get out of balance, and then before you know it, the new way of doing church doesn't seem so new anymore. It begins to feel stale. The returns start to diminish. And wouldn't you know it, right about then, guess what? There's a new model that you can implement. There's a new book that just came out, and this time, this guy has really got it figured out. And I can't help but wonder... Is that the design that God has for his church? That we'd go from fad to fad, just kind of wandering aimlessly at times with no direction, jumping from, from one hip thing to the next? Or has God given his church the scriptures and in them everything we need for faith and practice, especially in the church. Should not the scriptures have the final say on what the, skirt, what the church is and, and, and how we define it? Let's go another step. Should the scriptures have the final say on what the church does? Not just what the church is, but what the church does. Let's go one more step. Should not the scriptures be the final authority on how the church does what it does? What the church is, what it does, and how it does it are all to be shaped, guided, and in some cases even limited by the scriptures. Previous generations understood this and they incorporated it into their confessions of faith. In a confession called the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 and in the Westminster Confession, you'll find in the very first article on the Holy Scriptures, it says this, quote, the Lord was pleased at various times and in various manners to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church. Then to better preserve and propagate this truth and to better establish and comfort the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan in the world, God put his revelation completely into writing. So if we wanted to summarize that quote, in short, what these confessions say is that God was pleased to reveal himself to his church and his will to the church. And in order to, for the church to have a sure and steady guide, the Lord gave us the written revelation of himself. God gave us this book to make sure that we would know who we are, what we are to do and how we are to do it. And so... These series of sermons are designed to walk through some of these most basic questions about the church and our understanding of the church. And we want to begin this morning by examining the foundation, the bedrock of the church. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is 
the foundation of the church, and Jesus is the center of the gospel. So if we put the gospel at the center, we're putting Jesus at the center because Jesus is at the center of the gospel. And Jesus is at the center, and he should be at the center, at least, of the church. And so this morning, I want us to consider what a gospel-shaped church looks like. Not just gospel-centered. There's a lot of, in Christian publishing, there's there's a lot of gospel hyphen books, right? Gospel-centered, gospel-shaped, gospel, you know, whatever, driven, gospel, you know, it's just gospel hyphen and then an adjective. But this morning I want us, and maybe this is criticism on myself, because I don't want to just talk about a gospel-centered shaped or, or formed church. This morning specifically, I want us to look at what a gospel-patterned church looks like. So I'm just adding to the list of adjectives here. A gospel-patterned church. What does a gospel-patterned church look like? And to answer that question... We look at the New Testament and what it teaches in several places, and we see that there is a, a line of thought that we can take here to formulate what it is by what we mean by a gospel pattern church. First of all, when we start with the gospel, we know that the gospel is repeatedly referred to as the gospel of Christ. It is the gospel about Christ. It is the, the content of the gospel is about Jesus. That's why Mark begins his gospel in Mark 1.1 saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a book all about Jesus. The gospels are all about Jesus and the gospel is all about Jesus. We see that this is true of the gospel that Paul preached as well. If you went to Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 6, Paul opens this great theological treatise, this letter, by saying that he is a servant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised. Who? God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning what? The gospel of God concerning what? His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul says. Who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So this the gospel of Christ. It's God's gospel about his son Jesus Christ. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, chapter 4. Paul says it is the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God. So now it's a gospel about the glory of Christ. And later on in, in the same letter. In chapter 9 and verse 13. In chapter 10 and verse 14. Paul repeatedly refers to it as the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ. So let's let's understand what Paul is saying, what the New Testament is saying, is that Jesus Christ is the great subject, the content of the gospel, his person and his work, who he is and what he did are the great pillars of the gospel. And that's what makes the gospel good news. That's what the word gospel means. Is good news. The Greek word for gospel means good news. If you if you take that word in Greek, it's euangelion, and if you Englishify it, it'd be evangelion. If you break that apart, you have the word you, eu, which means good or pleasant, and then you have angelion, which is an announcement or news. And if you think about the word eulogy, right? When you, you go to a funeral, there's a eulogy. You means good. 
logos, eulogy means saying something. So what is a eulogy? You're saying something nice about the person. At least that's what you should be doing. If you've ever been in a funeral where that's not what the eulogy is, it gets very uncomfortable very quickly. But the good part of the good news is entirely in, of, and through Christ. And so the gospel is then first and foremost an announcement. It's a proclamation. The gospel is not something you do. It's about something that's already done. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has done everything to save his people. He died on the cross paying the penalty for their sins, that he rose from the dead and that forgiveness of sins is possible, that his righteousness can be offered to us simply through trusting him and him alone. That's the announcement of good news. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about good news that we want to proclaim to all people that Christ did it all come and be forgiven come and be reconciled come and trust Christ and it's in that proclamation as sinners are saved that the church is birthed the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and that message when it's believed in when it's rested in creates a people and those people in turn demonstrate the promises and the truth of the message. So the gospel creates the church and the church protects and displays the gospel. So the gospel is a message to be preached, but it's also a message to be believed. In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, I'm sure you know this, he says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? So what's my, what's my point here? We're told what we are to be about, the gospel, and how to be about it, preaching it, proclaiming it, declaring it. God tells what the church is. It is a gospel-propagating entity. And what the church does through proclamation through preaching through declaring through sharing the gospel so the gospel must be preached by the church and believed on by sinners now here's the thing all of that is in our mind or should be in our mind when we think about what paul says in romans 1 16 and here we can appreciate anew what paul says he says that i am not ashamed of the gospel why for it is the power of God for salvation, right? The gospel is what has power behind it. It's not our proclamation that has power behind it. It's not our declaration. The gospel is what has the power. It's the spirit of God going and changing hearts and lives. That is what has the power behind it. So the gospel tells us that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And then we proclaim the gospel knowing that only the gospel is what has the power it's not about anything that we can do. The gospel is about what Christ has done. And the gospel has the power. So we just get to be participants in it. So notice this gospel pattern. Okay, God gives the what. God gives the how. And when the what and the how are brought together, there is power. 
Do you see that? When we follow the pattern, the gospel pattern that God gives, there is power. And it's this gospel that is the foundation of the teachings and the apostles and consequently the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that the church in Corinth is God's field and God's building. And the building is only as solid as the foundation That's why Paul says in verse 11, No one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read it. It says, Paul says, We are fellow citizens with the household, uh, with the saints. We are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church has this apostolic foundation and the church always needs to remember and hold on to what the apostles held on to the gospel of jesus christ the apostles are the foundation and as one writer notes they become foundation stones of the church only because christ is the chief cornerstone so so stay with me here okay the gospel is the foundation of the church because christ is the foundation and head of the church so when we're talking about gospel patterned It means that we're not just saying, gospel pattern means that we aren't just saying that the gospel creates the church, though it does. We're not just talking about a to-do list for the gospel, preaching and believing, although the church should do those as well. What we're talking about is not just what the church is or what it does, but how the church does it. How does the church exist, worship, and serve? How does it preach the gospel in a way that reflects the gospel? How do we proclaim the gospel in our service in a way that reflects the gospel and the gospel pattern? And so a gospel pattern church answers the question of how we do what we do by seeking to reflect the pattern of the gospel. And so when we set out to ask and answer the question of what it means to be a gospel pattern church, here's the main idea this morning. If we could summarize everything that I've been trying to say so far, it's this. A gospel pattern church trusts in God-made promises, not man-made processes. Let me say that again. A gospel pattern church trusts in God-made promises, not man-made processes. It really comes down to two questions. Are we not called to salvation? And are we not called in the way that God has provided salvation? God sets the the parameters of our salvation, right? Okay. Then are we not also called to sanctification the way God provides it? So I want you to to see that there is a, a correspondence here. Salvation is trusting and resting in what Christ did for us on the cross, right? He died to pay for our sins and reconcile us to God. Salvation is through God's appointed promises, the promises he made. He sets the parameters of salvation, not us. So if that's the type of trust that is called for in salvation when it comes to sanctification and the church... Trusting and resting in the promises of God and the parameters by which God has said he would build his church. 
that there's a similarity in the rest and the trust that God is calling for. Are you with me? The same type of trust where we realize that there's nothing that we could do to make anything effective to save us. That same kind of trust that we, that we give to Christ and that we place on Christ to deliver us from hell, that same kind of trust is the same kind of trust that we want to place in God saying, here's how you ought to do church. And we say, you know what? We're going to trust that like we trust Christ for our salvation. If we can trust the promise of salvation, which includes the way in which it was accomplished, then we can trust the promise of sanctification and the means by which God has promised to do it. In other words, it is not the case that God saves everyone and then says, okay, now you do church how you want to. I did my part, but now you've got to grow them. You've got to sanctify them. You've got to multiply them. It's all on you now. No, God has given ways and means for the church to trust and grow. So a gospel church, a gospel-shaped church, a gospel-formed, a gospel-patterned church is one that doesn't trust at all in its own power to produce anything but trust fully on Christ and His promises. When it comes to understanding the church and our doctrine of the church, just as in salvation that God gives us the what and the how, the same is true for the church. When sinners respond to the gospel, it's because the Holy Spirit has done a work in their hearts and their minds and will. Sinners know and comprehend their condemnation that the law brings. They recognize their inability to save themselves, that they can produce nothing meriting salvation. And they trust in Christ alone. That's why Paul says what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave the growth. So being a gospel pattern church means we trust God to give the growth. We trust what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, where he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's a promise. God has promised to build his church. And here's where it gets so tempting. Many of these man-made processes for growing a church, they really do produce visible results. Let's just be honest. They produce visible return. And perhaps, perhaps here is where we come into the real problem for many of us. For whatever reason, we're obsessed with seeing visible and even immediate growth and results from our labor. And when we don't see it, it discourages us. And it should be discouraging if it were not for the fact that God often works in ways we do not know or see. For example, every Sunday in churches, invitations are given. We have a time here on Sunday where you can respond to what you've heard. And you're invited to respond in believing the gospel, trusting Christ Christ for salvation. And most Sundays in this church and others, nobody comes. And if we take that metric alone for a preacher and for a church, it can be discouraging. Week in, week out, preach your heart out. You preach as if it's going to be your last 
sermon ever. You pray coming to church and say, God, we want to meet, we want to see, uh, uh, we want to see something happen. We want to see people's lives change. And then the invitation comes and goes and nobody comes forward. It would be discouraging and it could be discouraging were it not for the spirit of God at work behind the scenes. It is a work that is often invisible until someone does publicly express faith in Christ. Listen to this work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. This is how it's described according to one confession from about the 1600s. It says, when God works true conversion in the elect, God not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly, so we see that, but then look at this inward work. God enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. But by the effective uh, operation of the same regenerating Spirit, God also penetrates into the inmost being, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. God infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, the stubborn one compliant. God activates and strengthens the will so that like a good tree it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds." Most of that happens without us ever seeing it. Every Sunday, as the word of God is read, as we sing, as we pray, and as scriptures are preached, the Holy Spirit is working in ways that often go unnoticed by us in the ways that I just described in that quote. I'm afraid that many Christians... Many of us have been discipled into a mentality that if we don't have a Billy Graham type of response every Sunday, then did we even have church? If you're here this morning and you're visiting and you go back to your home church, can I just say this? Don't put that type of burden on your pastor. There was only really one Billy Graham. What if God's primary means of sanctification, of spiritual growth, of seeing fruit, was the low and the slow, plain, ordinary means of showing up to church, praying, hearing scripture read, preached, and then celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptism together? Here's the thing. Perhaps we should think of it this way. What if God's primary cooking method for growth is not the microwave, but the crock pot? It's the smoker, not liquid smoke, if you know what that is. A gospel pattern church trusts in God's promises, not in man-made Processes. Now, this doesn't mean that we, we sit and twiddle our thumbs. That's not what I'm saying. It's not that we sit idly as a church. But what it does mean, however, is that we may do well to ponder this question. Okay, What if everything the church needs to function well and biblically, God has already given to it? What if contained in these pages, God has given us enough for us to operate as he would have us to operate. 
and the way he would have us to operate and the, for the reasons he would have us to operate. Many churches are constantly looking for new paths and new ways. But what if the old paths and the old ways are what's really needed? I'm not talking about old paths, old ways, going back to the 1800s or 1700s. I'm talking about going to the old paths and old ways of, you know, A.D. 34, 35, 36. It's a crazy idea, but hang with me, okay? What if we tried doing church God's way and trusting God's way of doing it? Now, that's not to say that we oppose ideas that come from others. I'm not saying we can't glean insights from others and their practical ways of doing things. I believe in what's called common grace and that he gives some people exceptional insights into procedures and practices. But I've been in ministry for almost... 20 years, a little short of 20 years. You know what I've never seen a church do? I've never seen the leadership of a church say, we are so great at all this biblical stuff, we can now move on to learning from the other uh, extra biblical stuff. I've never seen that. I've never seen a church so solid on the foundational things that they feel comfortable moving on. So, What are we saying? We're saying that we ought to trust not just in the promises that God has made about salvation, but the promises and the plan that God has made for the church. If we could look in Scripture, God has given us the methods, the metrics, that is how we are to do it, how we are to measure a church. And the gospel is at the foundation of all that. The gospel tells us ultimately that we have to trust outside of ourselves. The gospel is the good news of Christ's righteousness offered to sinners by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God is holy and just and perfect and we are sinners. We are born sinners and because we are naturally born sinners, we deserve God's just judgment. We deserve his righteous condemnation. We deserve death and hell. That's the bad news. The good news is that God did not leave us in that wretched state, but sent his son Jesus Christ to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life that was without sin. And he died on the cross in the place of his people that he had chosen before the foundation of the world. And this work of the son as our substitute was so sufficient and final that God saved his people through Christ's work on the cross and so final and sufficient was his work that he rose from the dead. He's now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. And now that Christ has paid for our sins, God offers us salvation freely out of the overflow of his grace and love and kindness towards us. Salvation from sins is through trusting and resting in what Christ has done. By God's grace, when we trust in Christ alone for salvation, we are saved. That's the good news. We are saved by Christ. We are saved by trusting. So, dear sinner, you can be saved if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. If you will trust and rest in what Christ has done for you, you will be 
saved. The Bible has a wonderful promise in Romans 10, 13. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you say, is it that simple? It really is. Trust Christ. Rest in him. Sinner, believe that he died on the cross for you and for your sins and that he rose again. And you probably know this, John 3, 16, that God showed his love for you in this way. He gave his only son that whoever believes, that is trust and rest in Christ, should not perish but have eternal life. But if you reject this gospel that we've been talking about, you need to know the dire and desperate state you are in. God's wrath remains on you who do not believe the gospel. But those who do accept it and embrace Jesus as Savior with a true and living faith are delivered through Christ from God's wrath and from destruction, and we receive the gift of eternal life. So, saints, you are saved by Christ. Trust in his work on your behalf that your salvation was all a work of sovereign grace. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive by the work of the Holy Spirit who applied Christ's saving work to you. Why? Because God chose you from before the foundation of the world, according to Paul in Ephesians 1.5. This is the type of trust we're talking about in response to the gospel. Why would we let this type of trust disappear when it comes to God's plan for the church? If we so trust the Lord for our salvation, let us likewise trust him for our doctrine of the church. Let's trust that God has a design for his church, which he has given to us in his word. Let's trust that the same power that is behind the gospel being the power of God for salvation is the same power that grows the church with the type of growth that God wants to give it. A gospel Pattern church trusts in God-made promises, not man-made processes. It trusts enough in his promises to trust in the plan that he has provided. God-made promises, the what, as well as the God's provided plan, the how. This is the vision for Poplar Spring Baptist Church. My hope is not that we get caught in the endless cycle of chasing one fad after another, hoping that the next one will really work. My hope for Poplar Spring is that we will seek out those paths that have already been worn out and laid out for us in Scripture, carved out by Scripture and the history of Orthodox Christianity. So over the next several weeks, we want to map out exactly what it is that a gospel pattern church looks like. What are those provided plans that God has given that we can trust as God's blueprint for the church? I'm excited for this series. I don't know if you are. But I hope that as we see, there are two reasons why I feel like this is so important. Number one, if we want to see the kind of growth that God wants to give, we ought to strive to be a church that functions the way God does. But number two, and this is just a personal testimony, if we would commit to the church the way God 
has designed and planned for the church. I want to be conservative in my estimate, but I would say 90% of our anxieties about church would evaporate instantly. Now, I'm not saying that every church is going to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying, but I've been at this long enough to see the anxiety that certain approaches bring on a church and on a pastor and the toll it takes. Here's a third reason that I just thought of. If you understand this, you can be proud of your church. You may not ever say it to anybody, but maybe there's been times where you've been ashamed or not necessarily excited about maybe inviting someone to Poplar Spring or you thought there's way better churches that are more exciting, they're more fun, they've got better audio and and all this other stuff. But if we could understand what God wants for His church and understand what God does through the plan... I think we will want people to be here because of what God does every Sunday, week in and week out through a church that is committed to following His ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this start to a sermon series that... um, Lord, in many ways, is a chance for us to examine not just who we are as a church, but who we are as believers. Uh, God, we, we perhaps need to confess those areas where we have, where we've been quick to judge our church or to, to sell our church short because of things that it lacks or because of the things that it does, or the way that we do it, that we think, that's, that's not uh, the way that, that, it, that is the most exciting, or the most innovative, or the most uh, capable of drawing in new people. Lord, maybe we need to confess that we have not given much thought to, to how we do church. We, we just thought, it was just something we kind of just figure out and, and we can do it however we want it. And, um, and we've never given much thought to, to a pattern being behind it. But God, if we can trust you and your plan for salvation, we can trust you and your plan for the church. And that's what it really boils down to. God, help us to trust. Help us to trust who you are. And let it be the foundation for how we are. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that as they've heard this gospel, the good news that Christ died for them, even though they are sinners. God, maybe their, their heart, their conscience has been touched. That, that work of the Spirit that we talked about has happened. And, and they want to trust you for salvation. If that's the case for anyone here, Lord, I pray that they would come find me, come talk to me, let me know so that we can uh, rejoice with them and also uh, equip them for the next steps of 
following you. Lord, we thank you for this time of being here in worship, to be joining in what happens in churches around the world, uh, what's happened in churches before now, what's happening in churches after, and what is continually going on in heaven as the angels and the saints are worshiping you. It's been a sweet time. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.